One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the news from across the front lines, talk about President Zelensky's press conference, and hear how Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, thinks his army is the most combat effective in the world. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 20th of December, one year and 299 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and foreign reporter Tim Sigsworth. I started with the latest news from Ukraine. Let's start with the the drone strikes last night. Drones were launched last night, largely across the country, but settled on the cities of Kiev, Odessa and Kharkiv. Ukrainian Air Force said it had shot down 18 of the 19. Two S-300 missiles were also fired on Kharkiv's Saltivka district. The mayor there, Mayor Igor Turekov, said that the target was, quote, purely civilian and there was no military or government infrastructure nearby. Hezom was also hit by shelling. No deaths reported there, but children were among those injured. This continues the pattern. Moscow has stepped up its nightly attack on Ukrainian cities in, in the recent weeks, obviously as part of the, uh, the much-anticipated winter surge in bombardment. So far, air defences from Ukraine are doing the, bringing down the vast majority. Meanwhile, though, across the front, largely reported by the Institute for the Study of War, ISW, Russian forces have advanced to the northeast of Kubyansk, north of Bakhmut and southwest of Avdivka. There's also reported artillery ammunition shortages that continue to hamper Ukrainian efforts to go on the offensive. Ukrainian Tavrisk Group of Forces Commander Brigadier General Alexander Tarnavsky, he said in an interview with Reuters that was actually published on Monday, only got sight of it today, that Ukrainian forces have shortages of 122mm and 152mm shells, 122mm rockets, meaning they have to spend more time, Ukrainian forces this is, have to spend more time and effort and planning capacity to husband the resources, husband the shells in places where they're needed most, changing plans at short notice, all that kind of stuff. 
all adds to logistic headaches. And remember, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. As a reminder, the 122 mil, they're the old Soviet-era multiple-launch rocket system uh, munitions that the rockets fired from the likes of the kind of BM-21 Grad launchers. 152, that's the artillery shells. And whilst Ukraine has been moving to the NATO standard 155 mil, they still have a lot of legacy equipment from the old Soviet days and hence the need for 152 mil um, ammunition. However, General Tanavsky said that Russian forces are also having issues with artillery ammunition and Western officials have assessed that uh, Russian forces are currently conducting artillery fire at a rate five to seven times greater than Ukrainian forces. There was a time some weeks ago where there was thought to be parity uh, in the number of shells being fired. It's now tipped yet again. I mean, Russia's always been a very, very artillery-led military force, so they are firing more shells at the moment, which speaks of the, the difficulties in the logistics supply that we've been highlighting. Generally, however, the front line across the country is characterised by what Britain's MOD calls stasis, their word, stasis. Today's Defence Intelligence Brief says that Ukraine has put a concerted effort into building up field fortifications along the whole line. For example, the defences along its border with Belarus has seen new um, new additions of dragon's teeth, razor wire, anti-tank ditches and so on. They say Russian offensive operations, such as the ones that we've reported in the kind of uh, Kupiansk-Liman Bakhmut areas, so northeast through to the east, that sort of crescent, if you like, those attacks are rarely above platoon size. This is Russian attacks, rarely above platoon size. So that's about, you know, let's say, 30, 30 soldiers, I guess, perhaps backed up by maybe a few armoured vehicles, maybe a tank or two, nothing significant. And British MOD say a major Russian breakthrough is unlikely. Ukraine's largest mobile provider that we talked about the other day, so next story here, been hit by a second outage in a fortnight. This is Kyivstar we're talking about again. 24 million users across the country. It was hacked by a Russian cyber group on the, on the 12th of December. And now reports of outages have been coming in across cities in the south and the west of Ukraine. A spokesperson for Kyivstar said our network is currently in the stabilisation phase after a large-scale hacker attack. So there may still be short-term difficulties in the operation of services. I think I got pretty much the same message from Virgin a couple of weeks ago. But uh, no, for the, for the legal Johnnies. No, that was a joke. Sorry. No, Virgin are brilliant. I love them. Right, next. More than 5,000 lorries are stuck at the Ukrainian border. This is from the country's border force. Spokesperson Andrei Demchenko said 3,600 trucks currently stuck at the Polish border, 570 in Slovakia, 250 in Hungary and 800 in Romania. Uh, The Polish border crossings remain blocked. The other three countries are technically open, but there's huge backlogs because of strike action across the place, disgruntled rival truckers. Again, all part of the um, well, you could all you could argue that it's the it's the, uh, the the normal politics resuming because this is arguing about the price of grain and goods and services flowing across Europe, but it's it's not helpful for the uh, for for Ukraine's war economy. A couple more for me, and the United Nations has verified 142 summary executions of civilians by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. So this is coming from the UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk. He said the real figure was likely to be higher. But as he was speaking um, at a uh, Human Rights Council meeting in Geneva, in Switzerland, he said on the occupied territory, we have documented widespread torture and ill treatment of detainees, including sexual violence, as well as large numbers of enforced disappearances. So 
I mean, I'm glad that the UN is now focusing on this or has, has raised it. So what's next is what I'm looking for. What action do you take? What do you do? What do you try and push through the uh, either Security Council or the General Assembly? Or what action do you take from here? But at least Volker Turk is talking about it. And then just finally, as a segue into our man from Brussels, uh, the Russian army apparently is the most combat effective in the world, according to um, Sergei Shoigu. The Russian defence minister has claimed that the Russian army is, quote, the best prepared and most capable in the world whiffs of chemical alley here he said the russian military is quote armed with advanced weapons that have been tested in combat <laughs> it's certainly been tested in combat and that um despite the sanctions we produce more high-tech weapons than nato countries yeah fine what else did he say he added the military has received well so okay this might actually be true he added the military russian military has received more than 1500 new and modernized tanks more than two and a half thousand armoured infantry vehicles and 237 new planes and helicopters. What he didn't say, though, was how many of those were still in one piece. But for more on Shoyu's comments and uh, what, what the, uh, the event he was speaking at was timed to go alongside, let's, we haven't got to go too far to our Brussels correspondent because he's actually he's shown his face in the office today. But, um, Joe, what can you tell us about this press conference yesterday and, and, uh, and Putin's response? Like a, a London bus, as the joke goes, you see me, don't see me forever, and then you see me twice in two months. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having me in London. So, yeah, so Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, yesterday gave his end of year press conference where essentially he's in a big room in Kyiv. Journalists from around the world are packed in. There was the BBC were there. There was various, I think the Polish broadcasters were there, German, Ukrainian. You name it, everyone who was in Kyiv would have been sat in the room begging for a question. And it, I, I was watching from my office in Brussels for about two and a half, nearly three hours of listening to Zelensky go on. But I think the headline, and it's the story that we have run in today's paper, is Zelensky last night, so as in Tuesday, pushed back against a military request to mobilise half a million, so that's 500,000 men, to join the fight against Russia amid, and that comes as part of reports of a mounting spat between Ukraine's generals and its politicians. So, yeah, as it, at his annual press conference, end-of-year press conference, which Vladimir Putin, I think, gave his last week, and it lasted for four hours, Zelensky didn't quite outdo him on that front, the Ukrainian president told journalists in the room that, yeah, that his military leadership had proposed mobilising between 450 and 500,000 people. This is what Zelensky had to say about that request. This is a serious number. I need some serious arguments to support this direction. I need concrete information on what will then happen with the million-strong military of Ukraine. So last month, Valery uh, Solzhny, Ukraine's uh, essentially commander-in-chief, the head of its armed forces, and Defence Minister Rustam Umranov was sent away to basically draw up fresh mobilisation plans after the long-heralded counteroffensive basically failed to drive Russia out of the country. So... Where does this fit in with the politics? So currently, Zelensky and Zelensky are in a bit of a spat. So last month, the general infuriated the presidential administration when he said the war had reached a stalemate. Zelensky basically came out in public, almost unprecedentedly slapped his general down and said that wasn't the case. At the same uh, time, so in recent days, the pair have grappled over the president's decision to dismiss regional draft office officials um, as part of a corruption crackdown. And then also, Ukraine's army recruiters have faced criticism over their aggressive efforts to replenish their forces um, as 
basically the military faces mounting casualties and wear and tear from the fighting. So Zelensky described the issue of mobilisation as a very sensitive one, but he insisted his initial opposition to the current plan, so that's mobilisation for half a million people, or up to half a million people, was not about mobilisation numbers or his personal spat with the generals, but the estimated cost of 500 billion Ukrainian hryvna, that's about uh, 10 billion pounds from the top of my head, for the, basically the cost of these additional troops. And Zelensky said, Look, to pay for one Ukrainian soldier, we need six Ukrainian taxpayers. That's the maths that we have here when we plan for the future of our military action during the war against Russia. It's not about personal things. All personal things are discussed with my wife. So he was sort of tongue-in-cheek. But he was constantly probed on the idea that him and Zeluzhny have been at loggerheads over how the war is panning out. And he dismissed talk of any sort of feud. He said, look, both of their jobs are great honours and he won't go into personalities. He said, I have a working relationship with Zeluzhny in a sort of a very snappy cut-off comment. Bearing in mind, I was listening to the English interpretation provided by Reuters rather than listening in Ukrainian, because my Ukrainian isn't quite up to scratch to listen to Zelensky go on for two and a half hours. But yeah, that what's basically interesting is look you've got these two blokes have been pitted against each other the general is actually considered a a potential replacement for Zelensky one day so Zelensky enjoys broad support as I was mentioning in the Kiev International Institute of Sociology polling yesterday but his basically likability trustworthy levels have dropped from 84% to 62% according to the latest polling but the same poll suggests that General Zeluzny enjoys the trust of 88% so a bit more on the conscription before we'll go and have a conversation about all of this so any conscription plans agreed between Zeluzny the generals and the Ukrainian politicians Zelensky whoever will then have to be ratified by Ukraine's parliament where questions have been raised over whether women could be called up and whether people who are younger than the current age of fighting which is between 26 and about 60 is the current considered age of fighting they basically try and leave students out of it and leave young people out of it because he's trying to preserve what or do what he preserves sees as preserving the long-term future of ukrainians rather than throwing everything he has he's he, he treads this fine line between supplying the military of enough but also making it a consensual effort of who volunteers and who is called into the army so Zelensky said, as for the women, no, I'm not going to sign this idea like this. And as for the age of 25, if the substantiations are provided and I see it necessary, I will agree to that. So he's, he's sort of seeing that yes and acknowledging yes, we might have to change the parameters of how we uh, of how we conscript. So the, the issue of mobilisation has become a really prominent one in Ukrainian politics. And basically, as Ukraine faces an increasingly, increasingly difficult situation on the front line, Ukraine is waiting for aid packages from the US and European Union, and there are frequent reports of troop and weapon shortages. So critics have accused Zelensky of pre- only pretending to mobilise, while his allies would insist he is actually trying to protect Ukrainians from the bloodshed of war. So yeah, it's a really interesting idea and battle that's playing out. And I remember writing about some of the sort of guys who had volunteered and the sort of then remobilized after being caught in the prisoners of war when i was there last summer uh, but yeah it's a really tricky situation especially as when victor uh, vladimir putin um wins his next election as expected he's probably going to mobilize again and russia has far more resources and far more disregard for the the, the sacredity of sacredity of life 
so yeah that's ukraine really probably has to act but it's the fine balance of doing stuff and yeah let's have a discussion i was interested the bit yesterday about the press conference about these numbers it's very obviously very striking that the numbers there four four hundred fifty to five hundred thousand people being asked for by the army that i mean that's a that's a huge number it's probably uh well it's probably an under underestimate i, I guess but Huge number. And then this point that Zelensky said, he'd, he'd looked at it and he's, he's asked for more information, need more, more arguments to support the move, I think the quote was. So this was, there was some discussion here in the office, like, oh, is this another, yet another point of contention between him and Zeluzny? I, I don't necessarily think so. I, I mean, you are allowed to have these kind of discussions. Again, maybe slightly odd or a sign of confidence, perhaps, take your choice, that it's happening in public. But um, I don't think it's, it's, it's odd for the military to put forward their view slash advice slash recommendation and the politician to, to take a different view that's how the system should work i would argue that's much better than just having one one sort of egomaniac in charge who just decides everything you know where do we see that so i didn't see this as a point of contention between Zeluzny and Zelensky. i also think i mean it's one thing to ask for five hundred thousand, but i mean the numbers alone it's not just a question of numbers but as Ben Wallace, former Defence Secretary, who's now writing for The Telegraph, he made the point here in the paper a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I guess, that actually you know, Ukraine needs to decide whether or not to mobilise its workforce. At the, at the moment, the age, as you said, of, of conscription is, or the age that they're, they're mobilising or they're taking people for military services is, is quite high. We'll remember the average age of the combat soldier in World War II was 26. The average age of the combat soldier in Vietnam, we will all remember, those who came of age in the greatest decade of music was 19, obviously. So, you know, quite a bit lower than what it is at the moment in Ukraine. But the policy at the moment seems to be to firstly protect that generation who's going to need to rebuild the country afterwards, and secondly, protect the economy. Um, ben Wallace was arguing that in, a, in an existential fight, you've got to still be there at the end to have an economy to then rebuild. He was arguing that Ukraine needs to mobilise and they need to make a decision on the age and the numbers that they that they bring in. But it's not just a question of numbers and the impact on the economy. That scale of expansion needs... Well, think about it. If you took half a million people into the military or you, you designed a programme to do that, you need the infrastructure to, to put them all. You need the training areas, you need the instructors, you need a, a plan for where they're going to in the military. There's a lot of talk... Zelensky, I think, later in the press conference was talking about creating whole, I don't know if he said brigades or divisions or just sort of groups of forces of drone pilots. Just have huge, just a unit of, of a drone swarm, just first person view folks who could be women, you know, nothing. You know, they, I mean, there are women in combat roles. So they might, that might be where they, if they mobilise women, this might be where they, where they seek to go. Yeah, so, that, so where are you going to put all these people and all that bit, the organisation of what the military looks like? You've got to be, you've got to be careful that you don't, if you draw up a, from a blank piece of paper, a new army, a new military, you, know, you could very easily just break the whole thing. And now's not the time to do it. You know, when you're in, when you're in contact with the enemy, trying to reform a new military, it, it is very, 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 very difficult. You know, if you're trying to fend off your opponent with one arm while, while just having one hand to put your boxing glove on. It, it, it's very tricky. So I thought it was a very interesting point to discuss. Obviously, the, there didn't seem to be time in the... It was two hours that the press conference, I understand, but there wasn't time to really dig into what his concerns were about those kind of numbers, whether he recognised that those numbers were necessary and, and all the rest of it. But I, I didn't necessarily see it, or I don't, I don't necessarily see it as, a, as yet another sign of the degradation in, in the relationship between the two men there. I think there's a lot more to it than that. But that was just my 
That was my view. How do you think, Joe, how do you think the press conference was handled? And I was, the reason I say that is I was a bit surprised. I'm always disappointed when I go to these things and I see my colleagues from other media organisations do the sort of performative journalism thing. You know, I never take for granted the audience I get with some of these people. And yet you get journalists asking really bone questions because they are doing it for their own audience. So you stand up and say, blah, 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 big, you know, smashy, smashy on the battlefield. Are you losing the war, Mr. President? He's not going to go, oh, shit, yeah, you got me with that one. And it's all performative and they waste their time. They waste our time watching it and they waste their valuable position that um, that someone else would have loved to have had. Bit of a soapbox. But anyway, how do you think the press conference was handled, Joe? Yeah, no, look, that, that criticism on journalism, I guess, is a fair one. And I've sat through countless press conferences as a journalist in various spheres, whether it be a... Uh, or it be sort of, yeah, I've seen Zelensky give off-the-cuff press huddles or, like, politicians in the EU talking about Brexit. And you always get broadcasters asking these long questions and they purely want it so they can put it in their package showing their journalists asking a question. Which, yeah, so I, I think the BBC asked, were you going to... Are you losing the war? And he, Zelensky, replied, uh, I think his knee is no in Ukrainian, then basically stopped and then went on a little bit but look, there was lots of other things. Back to like talking about the forces. So Zelensky made the finances issue a problem, but he also then spoke about troop rotation. You'd probably be better at speaking about how you move troops from rest and recuperation, a bit of R&R, &R, um, moving them between the front line and basically rotation. Um, have they got 500,000 more assault rifles? Have they got enough small arms uh, to equip them 500,000 more winter jackets? etc so there's obviously lots of questions but um so other, i'll just speak about a few more noticeable things that he mentioned um in the press conference so in one show of defiance Zelensky insisted that he would not drop his war aims to restore ukraine's pre-1991 borders which include so the entirety of the donbass uh, the crimean occupied crimean peninsula peninsula which he said was basically i can't change my i could we could change our tactics maybe but that's a discussion for another day but we can't change our war aims because they are in our written constitution he brushed off any concerns about u.s aid about that remaining deadlocked he said, look, we're working very hard on this. I'm sure that the USA won't betray us. He celebrated the EU's recent decision to open formal membership talks with Ukraine by basically sitting in front of a blue and yellow starred flag of the EU for a portion of the press conference. He quite thankfully, because sometimes as a journalist, you sit there and sweat on the stories that you've um, had published. He confirmed that Britain is indeed in negotiations with Ukraine about it's a long-term maritime capability. And he said he actually acknowledged that the hold-up on why that deal hadn't been signed between Britain and the EU, he said, look, we have to revisit the topic of our homework that we are yet to deliver. And as listeners might recall, I spoke about as part of these bilateral security deals that are being done with Ukraine and its various Western partners, part of that is dedicated to various reforms that Ukraine is being asked to carry out. So basically, Britain is waiting for Ukraine to uh, do a little bit more homework on that. But yeah, like all in all, it was yeah, very performative. Zelensky wasn't sort of downbeat. He said, that, look, don't worry, Russia hasn't actually made any real military progress in 2023. While we've while that's not a lot, we've managed to claw back. Look at what we've done in the Black Sea. Look at the long range attacks we've carried out on Crimea. Look where the Black Russia's Black Sea Fleet is now. So there's lots to celebrate. And it came at, yeah, he was, he was Zelensky. He's not, he's a leader of a wartime country. He's not going to be downbeat. He's not going to react to people saying, are oh, you losing the war? 
because ultimately as well I don't think he believes they're losing the war even when times get tough he still thinks that something can happen and I, yeah we'll stop there on that one yeah and I think that's right we've I've written here in the in the paper I've said it a number of times war is much bigger than just one one largely static line of trenches and as you say the Black Sea where Russia has largely been pushed out of Sevastopol. They can't operate with any great confidence. They're not going to get whacked there in the Black Sea, so they can't be shoving all the um, the missiles into Odessa and the and the ports there on the south coast and the Danube. Hence, the grain industry, the grain sector, has got going again of much benefit to Ukraine's economy. So the 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 de facto blockade, if you if you like, is is no more from Russia, and so Ukraine, a country largely effectively basically without a navy has defeated the Russian Black Sea Fleet. As in, you, you defeat, you don't destroy everything, but to defeat, it, it, it can no longer render itself militarily effective. That is what defeat is. They've largely moved out of Sevastopol elsewhere to the, the base on the, forget the name, on the east of Crimea, also Novorossiysk in Russia. And then, as we're going to hear shortly from Tim Sigsworth, a little bit further on. So, yeah, the Black Sea is a case in point about how the war, which is much bigger than just the land campaign, is very much not a, it's not a, it, we shouldn't consider the end of 2023 as like, oh my God, yeah, Russia's actually just on the verge of, on the verge of winning. I thought that was an important point. But Joe, as he was speaking, as President Zelensky is giving his, his press conference, so, so Putin was also, he was addressing the Russian MOD collegium. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so my um, yeah, my sort of job yesterday involved in the morning. Again, I don't speak Russian, so I didn't actually watch it. But having to pour through much of the reporting on Vladimir Putin, yeah, speaking to this this basically group of defence ministry officials, and he boasted that Russia had upgraded almost its entire nuclear arsenal, with its defence industry beginning to outstrip the West. And so you you mentioned in your piece at the top, Dom, about Shoigu saying that. Um, they're, Russia are producing more than NATO, more high-tech things. Actually, in one area they probably are doing that is is long-range missiles and long-range drones. They're, they're giving more to their forces than the West are giving to Ukraine, so it's probably a bit of an area to, for concern. But he said, the uh, Putin said, the proportion of modernised weaponry available to Russia's nuclear forces has been brought to 95%. He added that the strategic forces were being kept at a higher level of readiness as the West wages, and I quote, a hybrid war against Russia. So basically, it came that afterwards that Kusti Salm, who is an Estonian Defence Ministry official, said that Russia's ammunition production is seven times greater than the West. And so Putin's orders were basically on track to boost shell production by two million per year. That's a lot more than what we're doing in the West he essentially revived this nuclear rhetoric as he boasted that the war in Ukraine had shifted in his favour, which, again, talk of that comes amid various Western efforts, uh, failing Western efforts to give Ukraine the supplies it needs from the EU, the US and, and other parties. So the Russian president claimed his invasion forces have the initiative on the battlefield, adding what we do, what we think is necessary, what we want. He claimed that Ukraine has suffered large losses and squandered its reserves in a dig at Ukraine's international allies. He said the myth and invulnerability of Western military equipment has collapsed. We can, I guess, speak about that. Dom, you're more of an expert than that on I than I am. And he basically said that all attempts, as they say in the West, to inflict a strategic military defeat on us, that being Russia, were beaten by the courage and fortitude of our soldiers clashing with the greater power of our armed forces and the potential of our national industry and defence production. So it's basically Putin, and this is probably the one area he really does have to boast, as I, as I mentioned, they produce more rockets, more artillery shells than the West are giving to Ukraine. 
He oddly spoke about negotiations, which I thought was quite interesting. So he said, look, Russia would be also prepared, prepared to talk to Ukraine, the US and Europe about the future of Ukraine if they wanted to. We don't think Putin wants to speak. He said, in Ukraine, those who are aggressive towards Russia and in Europe and in the United States, do they want to negotiate? Let them. But we do that based on our national interest. We will not give that up. And he basically said... The promise that Ukraine would one day become a NATO member is not acceptable for Russia in 10 years and not in 20. So if the West, if Ukraine and the West drop that idea, would he go to the negotiating table? But then I don't see Ukraine dropping that because it's part of their long-term, long-term goals for security. And yeah, that's it. And I'll, I'll say stop there before I linger and I'll say, we'll say hi to David, who is currently uh, going on his holidays by the look of it. Um, just on the negotiations there, I mean, he, he floats this. So just as he... Just as Putin every now and again just sort of mentions nuclear stuff for, for apropos of nothing, but what he's doing there is he's just dangling it again so that we all go, oh, oh nuclear weapons. You know, he knows what he's doing. It, it's nothing to do with the conversation that anyone's having, but he's just constantly prodding that because he knows the reaction he gets in the West. And the same with negotiations. He's not interested in negotiating anything. He's still got his maximalist aims. Only a couple of days ago he was, he was, he was talking about this. So what he's doing when he raises this spectre of negotiations is that he's hoping someone in the West, the weaker members of the of the external supporters for Ukraine, then go, ah, oh, you see, you see, they're not being totally unreasonable. We could do a deal. There could be something there. It could all end. Stop the bloodshed. You know, he's a you know he's a businessman. He's a gangster at heart. So let's treat him as a businessman. We can do it. You know, that's what he's trying. He's not interested in negotiations, but he will float it every now and again. And then he will be watching through the press and through the social media to see how these ideas are picked up and see where the calls come from for, ooh, is it time to make a deal? You, know, that, the, you can see the headline now, et cetera, et cetera. So don't give any credibility to Putin's suggestion of negotiation. That is absolute hogwash. But, Joe, just for, um, before we finish you and head over to, uh, to Tim, have you been looking at this Russian soldier who sought asylum in the Netherlands and is talking to the ICC? Have you seen this one? Yeah, first, let me just go on the negotiations and let's take the personalities out of it. So let's forget that Vladimir Putin and Russia are who they are. But what's, what is interesting is you can't... Ha- to have a negotiation, to come to a, a, a deal and an agreement, you have to have a mutual landing zone. And what Ukraine wants and what Russia wants, forgetting the politics, forgetting the, the rightfulness of it, are just completely incompatible with a deal. So, yeah, we're not going to have negotiations. So, yeah, we can forget about that. But, let, yeah, let's go to this this former Russian soldier who has sought asylum in the Netherlands and wants to testify at the International Criminal Court in The Hague about war crimes by Russia that he witnessed while fighting in Ukraine. And this is, according to a Dutch legal source, speaking to the Reuters news agency. The man, who identified himself in Dutch media as 60-year-old Igor Salikov, said he had been a member of a Russian-backed forces of the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine and had worked as an instructor for the Wagner Mercenary Group in Ukraine. So, yeah, like, completely fascinating that we're getting these stories come out now. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. So we can't, we can never, like, identify and independently verify these guys' claims. But apparently this guy, this chap, had been in touch with Ukraine's top war crimes prosecutor, in the last six months and had given testimonies. So this is according to Yuri Belusov, who is Ukraine's top war crimes prosecutor. He gave the testimony, some of which has already been confirmed about the invasion of February 24, 2022. He reported some war crimes which we are already investigating and that some we are already being confirmed. So Russia has obviously always 
declined and denied that it is committing atrocities or targeting civilians in Ukraine. But these things are coming out. And I guess as as happened with the Nazis in World War Two, you get some sort of who were willing participants who then come out and try and speak to the court, maybe to broker a deal to forget that. Well, maybe just to argue I was simply following orders. It wasn't my fault that we were doing that and trying to live in peace, knowing that they had done, had taken part in these atrocities. So yeah, it's just an interesting one. I actually expect lots of these to come out in the future because there will be plenty of Russians who want to have a normal life. Maybe they've, well, this guy's clearly outside of Russia. He's in, in the Netherlands or whatever. We don't know where he is, um, really. Um, he's trying to like, yeah, he's basically trying to, yeah, get away from Russia because maybe he's not, the uh, flavour of the month there as well and trying to almost claim asylum through this. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, I think we'll see lots more of that, but it's an interesting one to watch out for. Yeah, as I was rushing over to the studio half an hour ago, I did do a quick flick through and I, uh, there's some, uh, I can't remember where it is, I think it might have been Royce's headline, this guy saying that he, he decided it was time to uh, leg it when he was told to start shooting civilians and he just knew it, you know, it had gone too far. So it will be interesting to um, to see what he has to say. I mean, I don't know if that would, shift the dial much because Russia will just say oh, he's, you know, he's making it up but it, I think it would be it'll be very interesting to uh, to paint a picture there now then Joe thank you so much do hang around if you're able to now that we finally got you into into the office but Tim delighted to have you back you've been looking at this really interesting story out of the Black Sea we were talking about Russia's Black Sea fleet that's had to largely move out of Sevastopol to other bases back to Novorossiysk uh, in Russia and and also we talked about it briefly, very briefly, a few months ago. But you got more details about what's happening down in Georgia. What can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. Great to be back, Dom. Yes, so absolutely. Basically, as you were saying earlier, Russia has essentially lost control of the Black Sea. When once, in terms of naval, if you were to compare Ukraine and uh, Russia's navy side by side, there wouldn't be much comparison. But Ukraine's use of drones and also Western-supplied missiles, such as the Storm Shadow missiles, have proved very effective, actually. And so last year, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, was sunk. And in September, the naval headquarters, Russia's naval headquarters at Sevastopol, were struck by Storm Shadow missiles. And quite a serious number of officers, including senior officers, were killed in that. And so what we saw after that was that Quite a bit of the fleet moved 200 miles to the east, to the port of Novorossiysk, and essentially that was a move purely to safeguard the rest of the fleet because the threat from uh, Ukrainian missiles and drones was continuing. But now what we've seen is that Novorossiysk is not necessarily out of the range of Ukrainian fire. And very interestingly, the following month after the Sevastopol attack, the leader of a breakaway region in Georgia, the Abkhazia region, announced that he had secured a deal with the Kremlin to build, to lease actually, a, a port to Russia. And since then, what we've seen is, in spite of no confirmation really from the Kremlin, there's been no official statement or anything like that, we're now seeing some satellite images emerge of the port, which is called Ochamchire. And what we can see there is it's not been transformed into some sort of Pearl Harbor-esque facility, but we've got a few new buildings, a new jetty. And quite interestingly, there's been a removal of quite what seems to be quite a lot of silt from the port's entrance, which suggests that larger ships are now able to dock. Now, that might seem rather boring, to be honest, in terms of we're discussing a, a port and silting and the construction of buildings. But actually, what it's 
signals is, according to Professor Rick Fawn of the University of St. Andrews, is that the Kremlin is staying in the Black Sea, both despite and because of the humiliations that it has suffered at the hands of the Ukrainians. And so essentially what Ochamchere does is it would get Russian naval assets well away from Ukraine. So it'd be about 500 miles behind the current enemy lines. And of course, Abkhazia is an ostensibly independent state and de facto independent state, but it's only recognized by five countries, one of whom is Russia. So it was a, it was an autonomous republic during the, the days of the Soviet Union and it declared its independence from Georgia, who is internationally recognized as owning Abkhazia, in 1992. They had a war in 2008 and since then Abkhazian independence, de facto independence, has been pretty much established and there have been ever-growing ties with Russia. So Moscow provides a great deal of subsidies and military aid and as many as two million tourists to a province once known as the Soviet Riviera. So it sounds like a mighty fine place if I say so myself. But what we see actually is Abkhazia retaining a strong national identity in spite of that Russian influence and it seems that this deal to lease out the port has been potentially triggered by what we've seen in um, in Nagorno-Karabakh, which Azerbaijan successfully invaded in uh, September. So that was a, an Armenian enclave, enclave within, within Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan has taken it back. And it seems that there were perhaps some fears that that might happen again with Georgia invading, Georgia invading Abkhazia, although most experts I spoke to were, saw that that was a, an unlikely, unlikely prospect. And so what we see is Ochamchere isn't probably big enough to host the entire Black Sea fleet. I was speaking to Dr. Neil Melvin from the Royal United Services Institute, and he said likely some of the corvettes might be stationed there or some of their modernized frigates that fire cruise missiles, and those missiles potentially have long enough range that Russia could fire on Ukraine from near or actually at Ochamshire. And now that's one of the worries here because Abkhazia is technically still part of Georgia, and so if uh, Georgian territory was used to fire missiles on Ukraine, even if Georgia didn't do it itself, Ukraine would legally, morally, probably have a fair case to strike back. And now that the risk of that is regionalizing the conflict. Now, Georgia has tried to play this down quite a bit. One of their MPs who heads the Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee has said we're concentrating on imminent threats. It's Most experts think this is probably going to take three years until it's properly operational and things like that. But it nevertheless presents quite a unique threat to the Caucasus. So I was speaking to a former diplomat, Natalie Sabanadze, and she was saying that any attack on Ukraine launched from or near Ochamchere could easily regionalize the war. But also, it just shows that the risks here are immediate, not necessarily theoretical as Georgia is trying to play down. Now, Georgia is playing a bit of a fine line in between Russian influence and moving towards the West and, and that sort of thing. And it's playing, it is home to quite a number of Russian men who have fled to Georgia to try and avoid being called up and sent to the front in Ukraine. So it's very geopolitically interesting development. And the benefits for Russia really are, are quite significant. Obviously, they get this port, which may not be the new home for the entire Black Sea fleet. But what it is, is it's a rival to Georgia's own deep water port at 
a place called Anaklia, which is only 22 miles to the south. Um, Georgia wants that to be quite influential in terms of east-west trade. But of course, Russia's presence here will complicate that. And it will also complicate Georgia's ambition to eventually join the European Union because the EU will not be especially keen to have a Russian base hosted on what is technically one of its members' territory. Now, Russia has a pre-existing army base in South Ossetia, but perhaps, to conclude, the most important and immediate benefit for Russia is to Vladimir Putin himself, who has, as Professor Fawn told me, acquired nationalist fodder in the run-up to presidential elections. So a fully functional port will take time, Professor Fawn told me. But again, it is the very idea of the port that works as a de facto weapon against Ukraine, against Georgia, and indirectly against their Western supporters. Because what we have here is Russia asserting its sphere of influence, probably safeguarding at least some of its navy, and also pushing at the boundaries of a potential Western ally, though of course, as I say, Georgia is playing a kind of fine line between the West and with Russia. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting development. We're yet to see it fully operational, but it's definitely one to watch, Dom. Mm, brilliant. Thanks, Tim. We certainly will. And when I say we, I mean you. <laughs> but thank you for that. We look forward to hearing uh, hearing more as it, as it develops. Now then, just one more from me. I was running around this morning. I was in the US Embassy here in London, I was invited to a background brief by senior US Treasury officials to talk about what's happening with the efforts to curtail Russia's benefit from the oil trade. So you may remember September last year, finance ministers of the G7 agreed uh, to cap the price of Russian oil and all, well, all petroleum products in an effort to reduce Moscow's ability to finance the war, basically. And they said Russian crude purchased below a certain price, irrespective of market condition, or could only be purchased below a certain price, irrespective of market con- conditions. And in December, that price cap was set at $60 a barrel. And the G7-based finance companies would only be allowed to provide transport and other services to Russian-based crude, for Russian-based crude, under those conditions. Now, one year implement into the implementation of this price cap, they say it does continue to achieve the twin goals of restricting Russia's oil profits while supporting the global energy market or keeping that market stable. And as a stat, they said Russian oil tax revenue was down over 40% from January to August this year relative to last year. So one of the senior US uh, Treasury officials said that the basic problem here is it's, he described it as economics 101. He said it shouldn't be possible yeah, what you're trying to do is keep a good on the market without allowing the supplier of that good to make any money, basically, is an inherent economic sort of falsehood. Limit, limit the world supply whilst keep world energy prices stable. So that's the problem they, they've set themselves and they've had to negotiate their way through it. Now, over the past year, they say Russia has accepted a significant discount on oil sold under the cap, but has has also sunk significant amounts of money into a costly alternative ecosystem to sell oil without the G7 involvement, i.e. get around it. They cite independent analysis that says that the price cap premium that Russia pays to export around this cap amounts to an additional circa $36 a barrel. So that is eating significantly into their profit. 
And they say the the work so far has, quote, institutionalized a significant discount on the price of Russian oil relative to global oil prices at the same time as the Russian oil supply has remained generally constant. So that's a success. But they went on. Funny old thing. They always find it, well, try and find a way around it. Things evolve. They said what's happened this year is that there has been a generally been a rise in global oil prices driven largely by Saudi Arabia. You may remember Putin flew in, flew into Saudi a couple of weeks ago, and it was all hugs and smiles. Just after he'd been to the uh, the United Arab Emirates with more hugs and smiles, the United Arab Emirates. You may remember currently seeking to buy the Telegraph. I just bung that in there. Now. They also say, so there have been rising global oil prices, but also the infrastructure that Russia has built to, has built outside the reach of the price cap regime has come online, basically in the, in the summer. So all this stuff, the investment they made has come online. So they've been able to get around the price cap. So the, the expected and significant costs incurred to build that infrastructure would otherwise, or could otherwise have been used directly for the war effort. So that, that was a, a loss to Russia, but it's there and it's existing and it's working to a certain degree. So the, the Treasury officials are saying there's basically two channels of effort now. Continued emphasis on compliance uh, enforcement. So to say to the, um, the bodies within the G7, all the various private companies, to enforce compliance with the regime but also to increase the cost to Russia of moving oil outside what's called the coalition services regime. And this was described as pushing both ends of the balloon. Now then, what has happened? So is it working, basically? It's very easy to kind of go, oh my God, it's very, very complicated. I mean, yeah, I've, got, I've got an economics A-level, but I was like hanging onto their ankles as they're, they're yabbering away. And I'm like, bloody hell, what's going on here? But basically, the data show that it is kind of working. So there's been a widening of the discount on Russian oil relative to global oil markets. So what was about $13 in mid-October is now $18 this week. So it's more expensive to trade with Russia through their sort of dodgy back doors than it would be to um, to either trade with Russia through the regime or not trade with them at all. Now, one impact, for example, one, one um, very obvious impact is that so Russia's doing a lot of trade with India, but... They're paying for it. India paying for it in rupees. So Russia is getting a huge amount of money in rupees, which you can't really use. So it's reinvesting that money back in India. So you could say, well, they're they're benefiting through whatever those investments are, but you know that money is staying in India. And the Treasury official said that that is an awful lot better from the G7's perspective than having it deployed in Ukraine. That by itself is an additional cost to Russia. Now, the share, again, more data, the share of the Russian oil carried by non-coalition service providers before the price cap came in was about 10%. So they'd always been they'd always been sort of working with people who weren't part of the G7 group. But that has, quote, quote, very clearly risen significantly since then, as the Kremlin has actively invested in expanding that capacity. So it is a it is a movable feast. It is that Russia are constantly trying to find ways to get around the price cap and to continue their trade in oil. There's always going to be India and China who are enjoying a massive benefit, massive reduction in the cost of oil from Russia. But uh, it, it comes with huge costs to Russia, and that's that is diverting significant sums away from the war in Ukraine. There were some other announcements which they then said. There's embargo to 10.30 Eastern time, which is in about an hour and a half's time. Luckily, 
I didn't understand a word of it. So all the embargoed stuff, I couldn't babble anyway because I didn't know what they were talking about. But there will be some more announcements coming out later on in the next few hours that you will see on this on this subject. However, just to finish off with, as we went around the room asking questions, I asked what their, so that as this regime is, is adapting and, and evolving and moving on, what their biggest concerns were for 2024. And they both said, both the senior US Treasury officials said, actually, this thing is working. It's flawed. It's, it's, it's never going to be exact, but it's, it's good enough. And that's, that's about all we can hope for right now. That's not their biggest concern. Their biggest concern is the alternative mechanisms Russia is using to keep its defense manufacturing base going in those areas where Russia is not self-sufficient. So machine tools, chemical precursors, microelectronics to build you know, high-precision missiles, all that kind of thing. We've talked about it before on the pod. We've talked about that amazing FT Financial Times investigation of a couple of weeks ago showing how, how Turkey was violating the, um, the rules here to get around sanctions and, and supplying stuff to, to Russia. So that is the area that we need to focus on now. Well, they're saying this. And we need to keep our eyes on the, um, the sanctions-busting regime in weaponry and high-precision microelectronics, etc., etc., etc. So oil, good. Weapons, not so good. That's the kind of that's the kind of takeaway there. Um, but as I say, there will be more coming out today. If you are um, an economics buff, even more than the clearly vaunted uh, intellect that I've just displayed, then there will be more coming out in the next few hours. But uh, let's move to our um, final thoughts and let's go back to uh, go back to the, the Brussels beardy Joe Barnes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I do have a beard, I guess. Um, I'm going to end on some thoughts on the sanctions then I've, I was in a, another one of these similar briefings and western officials as we like to call them these days do these quite frequently now to try and get across the message that these things are working and the sanctions measures and so they were they were saying russia's economy has taken a 400 billion euros that's 350 million or out 380 so 350 million billion pounds about 380 billion dollars 400 billion euros as these sanctions buy it but Actually, because we, we, we can't look into Russia, we don't see this, the effects on this. And Putin continues to wage his war. Britain, as Putin touched down the other day in Abu Dhabi, where our colleague James Crisp was there to cover that, announced that it had sanctioned four, basically, companies in the UAE that was helping Russia circumvent the oil restrictions, oil export restrictions and stuff like that. So Russia will always find ways to get around these and and I, I think the West is almost a bit too optimistic on this front because we see that I, I remember writing the story about how washing machine trade went up exponentially after the war broke out and everyone said, no, we're not going to sell microchips or things that are called dual use technologies in the direction of Russia anymore, items that have both military and civilian application. So instead, Russian people or Russian actors, whether it be the government there that are friends with Russia or just actually just Russian businesses and Russian people going out to these places. So people in Kazakhstan were buying hundreds more white good washing machines and those were being basically taken on, disappearing into Russia essentially and, and then being cannibalised and the chips were being used in tanks, armoured vehicles and other various weapons and stuff. It's really bloody hard to stop this kind of thing and until we sort of manage to completely boil down or win over countries who are actually benefiting and profiting from these these sort of new trade routes, whether it be India is one of the great examples. It's buying Russian oil in at 
greatly reduced prices and then suddenly it's selling more oil to the rest of the world than ever before after it's been produced and turned into petroleum or whatever refined i think the term is and then say sold back into europe and i remember speaking to a, a sort of a high ranking european official who works on sanctions in the eu and they were like joe we just can't do anything to stop rebadged items coming back into the eu so it might not be sold directly from russia but russia is selling it to india who are then processing it and then selling it on and people are buying it up in the droves yeah it's, it's a really tricky one a tricky one to sort and i just think sometimes the west is probably a bit too optimistic on russia's ability to sort of yeah continue profiting from these programs from these exports and its ability to get around western sanctions because as we know that while it doesn't have any real microchip production capabilities itself it's still getting hold of these things it's still getting high-tech drones from china or whatever so yeah we're fighting a bit of a losing battle but hopefully what we are doing is helping to a certain extent thanks joe and tim please thanks dom yes so perhaps in slightly more farcical news i have a slight update from the kubiansk front which is that Russian soldiers are suffering from an outbreak of rat bite fever. Now, this is according to Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency. And now this rather horrendous sounding fever is transmitted by dust from rodent excrement. And symptoms include migraines, high temperatures, reduced blood pressure. Oh, that should be increased blood pressure, I think. Uh, Rashes, vomiting and perhaps worst of all, bleeding from the eyes. Now, of course, in trench warfare, we all know it from what we've seen of films from the First World War. It, what we know is that rats and mice and other little creatures like that make their home there, and I think this, these sorts of things are probably a natural consequence of that. Nevertheless, the interesting angle of this, on top of the farcical nature, is that Russian commanders... have allowed this to spread supposedly because they initially believed the soldiers were lying and try or overplaying the illness in order to try and avoid fighting which i think says an awful lot about indirectly reveals quite a lot about the extent of the evasion and the lack of morale of russian soldiers about wanting to fight or perhaps not wanting to fight and i'll just give i'll leave you with a final quote from ukraine's defense intelligence uh, which is that rat bite fever is mowing down on mass as a result rat bite fever significantly reduced the fighting ability of the russian rats and there we are thanks tim it's the environmental factors that you often overlook i remember in um when we were in Afghanistan, we had an outbreak of, of scorpion stings. We thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? Is this, you know, we suddenly uncovered a, a huge, an area of sort of huge scorpion activity. It's no, no, it was the, um, some of the soldiers got a bit bored, caught a load of scorpions, painted numbers on their backs, and then had bets on who could win the races. And, and they kept trying to pick them up and put them back to the start line. They were getting stung. And it's like, lads, God, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. You've got to admire it on a certain level. Anyway, thank you for that. My final thought, I uh, I was off on Friday, so I didn't hear uh, Francis Doney's call-out request for voice messages and photos from folks everywhere where you listen to us from. And we're absolutely delighted that, you, that you're sticking with us. Thank you so much for that. Anyway, I woke up on Saturday to dozens of voice notes. I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd thought dro- dropped a bollock and I'd probably upset someone. But no, it was they were all lovely messages. So thank you so much for those. I'm wading through them and trying to reply to as many as I can. 
and it's just it just shows what a wonderful bunch you are and you know many of the messages really really very generous saying that you know you're thanking us for keeping you in touch and all the rest of it but actually no we, we thank you as well because you know i was listening to these messages and one moment i'm in i'm in brisbane um in the, the glorious sunshine there and then the, the next moment i'm in i'm in ontario the next message i'm suddenly transported to poland and then sweden and then down to ballarat in in australia where i spent a few very very happy months working around there so it was just it was just delightful to hear all your messages all your words of support we're all frazzled we're all tired we're all strung out but hey that's that's what we do and it was just a really really nice philip at the end of the year to uh, to hear your messages so please do continue to send them we do as i always say we listen to all the messages we read every message we listen to the messages and we respond to as many as we can the team here we're only five strong so um you know we can't respond in in, in good time to everybody all the time but thank you so much very much appreciated and and yeah please do if you wish keep sending us a a voice note ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash ukraine the latest or sign up to dispatches which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're also doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.